Chapter fifty six of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter fifty six. Eventually, she met Holby at the golden wedding anniversary of an old actor who had been on the stage since boyhood, had married a young and pretty actress at twenty one and was still married to her after half a century of pilgrimage along the dramatic highways there were other old theatrical couples at the feast and they made wedlock look like a good investment the occasion was exceedingly benign and mem was so gentle that she accepted tom holby's apologies and his company home how wonderful she said on the palm-gloomed way to be loved by one man for fifty years i could love you for a hundred tom groaned let's get married and quit wasting so much time something impelled her to think aloud you're determined to play the simple septimus after all in spite of the censors she regretted the mad indiscretion an instant too late holby was startled and startled her by his quick demand you don't mean that you are about to that you are going to to no she said but like a child or a dog the simple holby occasionally had an instinctive understanding of something unspoken he astounded mem by saying so that's why you were hiding in palm springs with that phony wedding ring tom she cried aghast at his astounding guess at the truth forgive me he grumbled and that was that neither of them ever alluded again to the subject deeply as it rankled in both their hearts they were wise enough to leave buried secrets in their graves but in spite of what holby must have imagined he doggedly persisted let's get married in spite of in spite of everything he stormed tomorrow is the nearest day there is she loved him for that impetuous determination of his he swept her past aside as she had seen him conquer other obstacles avalanches thugs wild animals terrors that daunted most men she offered a weakening resistance what chance of happiness could we have as much as anybody she had to make an old-fashioned struggle but her reasons were modern i wouldn't give up my career for all the happiness in the world he had evidently been thinking that matter over a long while for he was positively glib i don't suppose any woman ever gave up her career when she got married how do you mean most women have been brought up for a career of housekeeping a father or mother told them what to do and scolded them when they did something else they learned how to make dresses and sew and cook and that was their business when they married they just moved their shop over to their husband's home and expected him to provide the raw stock and tell them what to do and scold them if they didn't do it or spank them this struck mem as a new way of putting an old story but she saw one great difference but that wife lived at home and her husband knew where to find her and he wouldn't let her do business with any other customer in our lives if we lived them together the husband would be away from home half the time so is the average husband with his store and his lodge and his club but then there's the travel when you're on location or when i'd be travel doesn't keep businessmen or lecturers or soldiers or sailors from marrying and half the wives in the world go away for the summer or the winter or on long visits but you'd be hugging other girls before the camera and other men would be hugging me as long as it didn't mean anything but it might come to well 
For the matter of that, a lot of hugging goes on in a lot of homes and outside of them. I was reading that most of the girls on the street were ruined in domestic service. Chambermaids and cooks are pretty dangerous things around a house for husbands, and husbands for them. And doctors and preachers are dangerous to wives. It's not a nice thing to say, but it's true. Then there are the stenographers in the offices, and the salesladies in the stores, and the cloak models and cashiers, and, oh, it's a busy little world, and it's always been so. The old patriarchs had their concubines and their slaves and their extra wives. No guarantee ever went with marriage that was good for anything, and there's none now. We've got as good a chance as anybody. But what if we should fall out? Divorces are so loathsome. They're pretty popular, though. They're more decent than the old way, and divorces are as ancient as the world. Moses brought down from heaven the easiest system. Yes, but Christ said, Christ said nothing about a woman ever getting a divorce at all. He only allowed a man to get it on one ground. But a good deal less than half of our population even pretends to belong to a church or ever did. I was reading that only a third of the passengers on the Mayflower were Puritans, you can't run this country by the church, especially while the churches don't agree on any one thing. We'd have to have a license, even if a clergyman should marry us. Mem was shocked by the possibility of a civil marriage. It would not be wedlock at all unless a parson sanctified it. Holby broke in upon her musings. But here we are arguing. Argument is death to love. Let's love. Let's marry. Let's take a chance. We can't be any worse off than we are now. We'd be happy for a while, anyway. He took her in his arms, and she did not resist. Neither did she surrender. Her mind was away, and her voice a remote murmur. How long could it last? We've just come from a golden wedding, and there were couples there that have had their silver anniversaries. But Jimmy Kohler and Edith Minot were married on Monday and separated on Tuesday and Mr. and Mrs. Gaines have lived apart for years, and they would be divorced if she weren't a Catholic, and the Blisses live together, but everybody knows their other affairs. The actors are no unhappier than the plumbers or the merchants. We'd have as good a chance as anybody. We'd be happy for a while anyway. Let's take a chance. But Mem was not in a gambling mood. She withdrew herself gently from his relaxing arms. She wanted to ponder a while longer. Marriage was a subject about which the best people told the most lies. If you are truly respectable, you never tell the truth about marriage or religion, and you never permit it to be told in your presence. Mem cherished the ancient ideal of an innocent bride going shyly into the ward of a husband who will instruct her reverently into awful secrets. She felt that she had somehow lost the right to be a bride, for there were no secrets to tell her. How could she enter a school when she was already postgraduate in its classes? She did not know how rare such ignorance has always been. She did not know that many good, wise people had felt it a solemn duty to instruct little boys and girls in all the mysteries long before they came to nobility. She was not yet aware of the new morality that denies the virtue or the safety of ignorance and loathes the ancient hypocrisies the evil old ideal that a normal man wants to marry a female idiot. She was pitifully convinced that she was unworthy of Tom Holby's arms. She knew that he had led the average life. She did not expect to find him ignorant of life, but that had never been expected of bridegrooms. 
It was from a deep regard for him that she denied his prayer and went sadly to her solitary room as to his cell for a fallen woman. Oh, to have been always good! There she rebelled against her doom. She grew defiant. The orange tree in the patio had both fruit and blossoms. Her heart was full of knowledge and yet of innocence. She knew the live coals of desire, but she knew also the hearth yearnings of the bride. She had the steadfast eagerness of the wife to bend her neck to the yoke. She loved her art. She loved her public. She felt at times immortal yearnings, immortal assurances. The doting author, Mr. Hobbes, waxed lyrical about the future of the movies. He was as much of a scholar as his years permitted, and he mocked the contemptible contempt of the cinephobes, the pompous oldsters, and the ridiculous preciosity of the affected youngsters who prated of art and thought it meant a lifting of themselves by their own bootstraps above the heads of the common people. They make me sick, the pups, he said. Chesterton said it when he said that some of the talk of art for art's sake made him want to shout, No art for God's sake. When the skyscraper was new, the same kind of posers howled that it was a monstrosity, rotten commercial blot on the landscape, proof that the Americans were hopeless Philistines. Now everybody that knows says that the skyscraper is the one great addition to architecture that has been made for centuries, the Greek, the Gothic, the American. When the drama was new in Athens, that was mocked at. Euripides was the popular one and wrote the human thing, the sob stuff of his time. And Aristophanes tore him to pieces worse than anybody ever tore the cheapest movie. He said that Euripides' stuff had all gone to hell already. And now we revere it, and Plato spoke of the laugh and the tear just as we do. I can stand the contempt of these whelps better than their patronage. I see red when they say that the movies are cheap and trashy stuff now, except a few foreign eccentrics like Dr. Caligari, but that they will some day be great. Some day hell, pardon my French, some day is yesterday. Great movies were done from the start. They sprang, full-armed from the brow of Jove, just as the drama did, and the skyscrapers and the novels. They're great now. They were great ten years ago. Griffith's Birth of a Nation is a gigantic classic. His broken blossoms converted a lot of highbrows because it was sad and hopeless. But happy endings are harder to contrive than the tragic ones, and no more inartistic. Then there are all the big directors. Rex Ingram, a sculptor and a poet, Reginald Barker, with his Scotch grimness and tenderness. Hopper, with his realism. Al Green's gaiety and grace. Henry King, Hayes Hunter, the two DeMilles, all passionate hunters of beauty and emotion. It's the critics that are small and always late. The critics always miss the express and come up on the slow freight. They always discover things the way Columbus discovered America, after it had been here a million years. Think how marvelous it is for you and me to be pioneers in the greatest art that ever was, the all-in-all -all art. We are like the Greeks, like the men of Chaucer's time and Shakespeare's time and Fielding's. We're presiding at the birth of an immortal art. Some of us don't know it, but posterity will know it. We're among the immortals, Miss Steddon. Isn't it tremendous? It's certainly very nice, if it's true, said Mem, who certainly belonged in the silent drama. But, as usual, her face was inspired with the emotion, though her words flunked. 
Her heart swung toward the author now. Hobbes made love to her in the thin disguise of scenarios and schemes for immortalizing her genius and his own. The partnership of an author and an actress seemed ideal. But when she was out of Hobbes' range and under Tom Holby's spell, she was easily convinced that the ideal partnership was an actor and an actress. She had been of a mind that actress and director made the perfect combination. Claymore had left his autograph on her soul. Then a rich man, wintering at Los Angeles, fell into her orbit and began to circle about her in shortening ellipses. He wanted to put big money back of her and organize the Remember Steden Productions, Inc., and make pictures exclusively for her. But he talked so large and was so large that he frightened off her love, and the wealth of Wall Street, that hell of iniquity and persecution of the toilers, seemed to be sobbing away like the last water in a leaky tub. This love business was driving Mem frantic. In all the pictures she had played, as in the traditions of her girlhood, love was a thing that came once and never came again. Good women knew their true fate mates at once and never swerved in their devotion. Yet here she was, passionately interested in several gentlemen, finding each of them fascinating just so far and faultful thereafter. Instead of giving herself meekly to the bliss of matrimony, she was debating its advisability, practicability, and profit. She must be at heart a bad woman, one of those adventuresses. Either fiction was very untrue to life or life very untrue to fiction. Then came the pause. Hard times struck the movies so hard that in the studios they became no times at all. The disarmament convention met in Washington to prepare a naval holiday and guarantee another end to war, war that is always ending and never ended. Most of the motion picture factories disarmed entirely, and the rest of them nearly. The Bermond Studios kept one company at work, and it was not Mem's company. She was stricken with terror as she confronted her problems. The smiling future was a dead past. The garden land of Los Angeles had reverted to the desert. All that art talk suddenly became bread-and-butter talk. What could she do now? Not to perfect her fame, but to make a living. She would be poorer than her father. She would have to discontinue the installments of that conscience fund, which he had learned to expect from Dr. Bretherick. She could not even pay the installments on numerous vanities she had bought for herself from the shops. Her lovers were as defutured as herself. Authors, actors, directors, all. They talked poverty instead of marriage. End of chapter 56. Recording by Deanna Beauvais.